Hey everyone, this is KYT from ManandDeprived.com. I'm here with a very special guest, Gary Wise. The main reason why I say he's a special guest is because he's the only Canadian Hall of Famer in Magic the Gathering. And of course, ManandDeprived.com strives to display the current MTG Canadian talent that is out there. And it's, it's an honor to get uh, you on with, uh, with us on the show, Gary. So how, how's it going? Good, good. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, <laughs> it's nice to talk this, that people remember me. Um, well, hopefully. <laughs> I don't know if current well, Canadian... Fl- yeah, or I do. I remember use, uh, I used to read some of your articles, like, uh, what was it called? Limited Skills, or... Yep, Limited Skills and Wise Words, and uh, it's, you know, a bunch of stuff out over on uh, Cyborg.com. So, first question that... I'm going to ask you is obviously how'd you get your star in magic? Just a really quick rundown for us. Um, I was at University of Windsor in uh, I think it was 1996, and I came. I saw a bunch of kids playing in in my residence. Never really thought much of it, but then I came home and a buddy of mine, uh, when I was back for March break, said, "Hey, there's this new game I got to show you." You know, we used to play games like nonstop all night every night, and. Uh, he introduced me to Magic. He had two decks built, and one of them was like a Sarah Angel Sanger Vampire deck. And that was when he got to play. The other one was like a mono green guy's Legion deck, and he made me play that one. And of course, it sucked. And <laughs> I thought, and so I thought the game sucked um, because I, just, you know, I just didn't like to lose anything. And uh, I said, "Well, this game's stupid. I'm never playing again." And then uh, by the end of that week, I bought my first cards, and they got stolen. So uh, that was an omen that I should definitely never play again. And I went back to school, and those same kids who were playing, uh, you know, I, I sort of stopped and said, hey, what's, uh, what's all this? And they invited me to sit down and play. And the two guys who, uh, who taught me how to play at school, uh, I actually had my wedding like less than two weeks ago, and they were there. You know, they, they're, they're still good friends of mine. I didn't know them at the time when I, when I asked them about it. So it started a couple of great friendships. Wow. It's nice to hear that because uh, most people get their cards stolen except especially those that lose like a couple of decks, you know, they, they never return regardless. Well, you know, I have a really good track record for that. Um, those cards that were stolen, like I'm talking like I bought two sealed decks. I cracked a Shivan, which was like the best card in the game back then, or, or quote unquote, uh, like it was the best card to open in the, in, in the present, uh, in, in revised. And so that was really exciting. And then uh, we went to a club in Toronto called the Gasworks that was actually featured in Wayne's World. And, uh, at Gasworks, someone picked my coat pocket of my Magic cards, but not of my wallet. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I've, I've actually had a really good re- record of, of getting my cards back when they've been stolen uh, since then. Because, uh, you know, the, the best example being I had an Alpha deck, uh, like a Power 9 Lich deck, that uh, a friend of mine, Sao Yoon, borrowed. He uh, created a beta version of that deck. Uh, and then the box that both of them were in got stolen. And nine months later, I got a call from uh, from Gabe Sang, another you know top Toronto pro who's probably, you know definitely Hall of Fame worthy in terms of the caliber of his play. And Gabe said, "Hey, there's a guy here, and he's playing with your cards." And he knew that because my wow. I had a I had a Black Lotus that I traded up to from a Calman at Gen Con 1997 or something like that. And uh, after I did all the trading, uh, I got everybody who I traded with to sign in gold ink, and so it was very identifiable. And uh, so when, the, when the, a guy was there playing a deck with that Lotus in it, you know, which was really it was a one of a kind card. You know, I, I drove the hour drive in about 20 minutes, uh, confronted the guy who, who, had, who eventually found out had stolen the cards, basically told him, look, if you say you didn't steal them, that's fine. But I'm calling the cops. 
And if they come and they find that, that you're lying, well, it's a felony. And uh, about five minutes later, there was a tap on my shoulder in, in a, in a, a, a almost crying voice saying, Mr. Wise, can we talk? And, <laughs> and uh, I got my stuff back. So, you know, you can be vigilant and get your stuff back if you, if you, uh, if you have a mark just right, I guess. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you mentioned uh, also that some of your good, uh, the people that started you with magic without your wedding, I guess that's, that's a big part of this game is, is you get to meet people that, or get close with people that you wouldn't otherwise, right? So, yeah, you know, some people try to make magic all about the money, but you know, I, I really don't believe that it's a worthwhile endeavor if that's what you're doing it for. Uh, you know, when I was playing professionally, I was not making a very good living. You know, I was making enough to survive and to continue to travel to the next tournament and so on. Um, but, you know, ultimately, you play magic because it's a good time. You play magic because you enjoy the people that you're with. Uh, excuse the sirens outside, sort of that. Um, and, you know, that, that's got to be a reason. that You know, and that's why I quit. You know, I found that I wasn't having as much fun at the Pro Tours as I had been, that uh, I, I didn't have the willpower to continue playtesting at the same pace that I had to in order to maintain my edge because, you know, I just wasn't having as much fun playing the game. And so it was time for me to leave. And, and uh, you know, I, I have no regrets about that decision. Um, how did you go from just uh, not really liking the game that much, getting back into the game, and then into tournament play? Was it you, your friends? Um, it was obsessive-compulsive uh, tendencies. You know, my friend uh, taught me how to play. Uh, I... I decided I wasn't so happy with him kicking my ass. We were always very competitive. And so I went back to school. Uh, I started playing more. Then I started realizing that there was, you know, a lot. You know, back in, back in the mid-90s, it really was a game where it was all about who had the best cards. You know, nowadays with, with, with standard and, and a sort of formats limiting your card selection, that's not really the case. Or at least not to the same extent. But back then... You know, most people were investing a couple hundred bucks in the game. So if you had a deck that was worth two thousand dollars, you were going to kick their, you know, you're going to beat them thoroughly. Realizing that, I started trading. I was I was a total trading shark. Wow. Uh, people didn't really understand the, the values of cards back then. Uh, apparently, my building's on fire. I'm not sure what's going on. <laughs> um, people didn't really understand the value of cards back then. So I was able to trade from my hundred to hundred fifty dollars worth of investment up to. You know the full power nine and and all the Arabian Nights cards and all the, you know the other you know big card cards that were a big deal at the time, um, just through persistence, persistence, persistence. Uh, probably a little bit too much. You know I wasn't exactly leading the most balanced life at that point. You know I found magic. I found it really enticing. And I you know, I, I think you know a piece of advice I give to all your listeners is play and enjoy it. But you know do so with the understanding that there's more life than just magic. I, I didn't really have that approach back then, and I think that's why I was successful. You know, it, it, ultimately, it's it doesn't matter what you're doing. It's fun to win. And with magic, I found something that I was very, that, uh, you know, I was uh, I was very good at. And it, it felt good to win uh, at a time in my life where I, where I needed something where, that, that made me feel that way, and and uh, I continued to pursue it. You know, it, it, it's... It's a lesson in persistence because, you know, ultimately any game, any endeavor, the, the person who's going to do best is, you know, obviously is going to be talented, but they're also going to have a work ethic that's going to go above and beyond everybody else's. And I think that anybody who knew me back then would know, would tell you that my work ethic as, as a magic player was, was pretty damn good. 
Uh, Gary, d- define how you were a professional. Were you really just, was that your main job and you supplanted it with uh, being a writer and getting money that way? I think you mentioned that uh, in an old interview with John Becker. Until about, uh, 2000, about 2001, 2002, playing and writing about magic was the only things I was doing to make a living. You know, I got paid very well by Cyborg.com. Uh, I was actually the first writer ever paid by the old Magic Dojo. Uh, I went, you know, there was a time when uh, I think it was Brain Burst was coming out. This is ancient history, but you know, the Dojo was the website for Magic back in the day, uh, and everybody was dedicated to it until a new site called Brain Burst came out. And uh, Brain Burst started paying writers, so I went to Frank Kuzumoto, who was running the Dojo at the time, and I said to him, "Look." I have no desire to go to another site. I love what the Magic Dojo has done for the community and so on. Can can you and I work out a little something for me so so that I can, you know, feel good about the fact I'm getting paid for my work and 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 be happy to stay here? He said, "Sure, I'll give you a box for every article." I was like, "Fantastic," you know, because you know back then I was paying for my magic, uh, and uh, that started me down the writing path. And I quickly came to grasp the idea of capitalism as it pertained to Magic the Gathering. Um, started started doing a lot of buying stuff with magic cards. You know, like I would sell a card or I'd trade some of a card for something I wanted. Uh, I remember getting a couple of meals that way. It's like, oh, you know, treat me to dinner. I'll give you this card. Um, and then you know, the writing. You know, my 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 readership continued to build as a writer. And uh, I eventually went to work for Cyborg. They paid me very well. Um, you know, they paid me at. at a standard that I'm only really just surpassing now as a poker writer. Um, and considering, wow. you know, and, and I write for ESPN, you know, like ESPN doesn't pay peanuts. So, you know, that they were paying me quite nicely and that combined with some decent tournament results, you know, and, and a certain amount of laziness <laughs> that, uh, the magic was all I was doing for, for money. You know, and it, it I, I wasn't saving money. I wasn't. I wasn't. You know, building up a nest egg. But you know, I was. I, I had enough to travel around the world and and to do a lot of living. It was good. Well, that's that's really uh, incredible because I just can't imagine how, how people do it. I guess they they actually do writing on the side. A, a lot of it, like a lot of these Japanese players, are, are known to be playing. Well, they have a reputation to play twenty four seven. So I imagine to have something on the side as well. Well, no, you know, they may not. They they may just be profiting off of less knowledgeable players. They might be teaching. You know, there there are a lot of ways you can augment your income with, even within the confines of a a culture like magic. So, you know, you can you know you find a student, you find someone who wants who wants your opinions. You know, your time is worth money. You know, and you, you know it's it's just like anywhere. You know, once once your name has has recognition, it has some value. You know, uh, once I, once I was a regular on the pro tour. You know, there were always guys who were there waiting to loan me the cards that I wanted for my decks because they knew that being, you know, being friendly with me was was beneficial to them in some ways. And, you know, I, I was paid well for my writing. I, I did teach how to, you know, a few people how to play for, you know, you know with lessons. And, uh, you know, there are some, some of my colleagues would have told you that maybe I wasn't the best person to choose to be a teacher. But, uh, uh, yeah, you know, like you, you can make a living. But the thing is, magic really flattened out. Uh, yeah, you have to remember back in the day before Magic Online, and I know that it seems like time began with Magic Online now. Um, there were there were very few people who were at the top, and those those few people tended to band together in order to maintain that advantage. 
if if you had a group of five or six professional level players who were constantly playing together and working together, and no one else had a regular playtesting group that they could access twenty four seven because online play just wasn't that regulated. Um, you know, it was really hard for anybody else to catch up to those five or six guys. And that's what I was always a part of. I, I, if you look back at my record, I was always part of a massive team, you know, a team full of superstar players, you know, some of the best players in the world, you know, Kai Budde, you know, Dirk Babarowski, Alan Comer, Zvi Moshowitz, Scott Johns, Mike Turian, uh, you know, guys like that, you know, when we're, you know, I, I was probably getting a little bit more than I gave in those situations. Um, <laughs> You know, I was I was good for for organization and, and unification. You know, I was I was a very good networker. But you know, by by continuing to trade information with those kinds of minds and and to get that dialogue going, what you do is you pull your knowledge. And while that doesn't help you against them, it helps all of you against everybody else. And so before Magic Online, nobody could catch up to us, and that's why we had a extended run of of, of strong results. Uh, I, I think today it's a lot harder to be a professional player because. You know, there are no chumps anymore in the major tournaments. You know, back then, there were certain countries where if you sat down and I said, you know, where are you from? And they named that country, I would have <laughs> already won the match. Japan <laughs> was one of those countries. I was, I, at one point, I was, I think I was 19 and 3 against Japanese players. You know, like, it just, you just knew that you were going to beat the people from those nations because those nations hadn't developed as much as the United States and Canada had as Magic went. And, you know, they were climbing up a very steep slope. You know, Magic Online changed that. Every, everybody has access to everybody else now. And so, you know, it's 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 got to be hard to make a living because so many people are so much better at the game. Right, I would agree. Um, what do you think people... Uh, I don't. Th- I don't think... I think you might have managed to know. What did you think people thought of when they when they read you being a Canadian? Well, how was Canada's reputation back then? Well, Canada's reputation was pretty sick back then. Uh, Toronto might have been the strongest city in the world. Uh, in like ninety five, ninety six for Magic, it was either it was either Toronto, uh, New York, or Los Angeles. Um, Toronto had Eric Tam, who was the Canadian champion, who made the top eight of the first Pro Tour. Uh, we had Paul McCabe and Terry Bohr, who were the top two for the juniors of the first Pro Tour, and then one. Let me see. Paul won Pro Tour Dallas, and Terry won Pro Tour New York three. We had Matt Viano, who made a couple of top eights. We had Gabe Sang, who. Made a couple top eights, and I think more recently won a pro tour after I left the game. Uh, Elijah Pollock was an excellent player. Gary Krakauer was a two-time Canadian national champion. Like there were not cities that had a roster that deep back then. You know, New York was strong with with Finkel and 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 uh, a few of the guys like that. California was strong with Pacific Coast legends. That's a that's a name from way back in the day. But you know, like Toronto was as good as it came. So uh, I, I think that as a result, Canada always was respected to a certain extent. I don't know that my readers ever really cared that I was Canadian. I think that ultimately they cared that I was a magic player and they cared that I was, you know, living a professional magic lifestyle. Uh, but I, I don't think, you know, ultimately, you know, I don't have to tell your listeners that Canadians draw, especially Torontonians, draw a lot of their culture from American television, American uh, pop culture. And so, you know, it's very easy for Americans to identify with Canadian unless the Canadian is thumping his chest and yelling Canada, Canada, Canada all the time. <laughs> so I do that. You know, I do that on occasion. You know, it's, it's fun. Like, let's face it. It's fun to piss off Americans. You know, it's, uh, you know, they're, they're, they're so serious about their, about their uh, nationalism, you know, and, and their loyalty to the flag that sometimes it's just fun to kind of just, you know, flick their ear a few times with a, with a couple of, of colorful comments. But, uh, you know, uh, you know, Pierre Trudeau once wrote, once said, 
Um, living next to the United States is like sleeping with an elephant. No matter how warm and how cozy it is, you know, it, it, ultimately you're in trouble if the elephant rolls over. Uh, you know, I'm not quite in the quote right, but you get the idea. You know, so ultimately part of my job was understanding that my audience was primarily American, and so I wasn't there to piss them off. I was there to uh, to get them entertained. <laughs> Nowadays, I think maybe it's because that group of uh, Canadians that you mentioned, they, they all left the game at some point or maybe at the same time. And we're at this point where Canadians, uh, there there aren't that many names that come to mind. There's still all the names that really prop up are from either Japan or or U.S. or. Well, you know, I I can't tell you about the rest of Canada. I can tell you that in Toronto, I think part of what happened was that group is so dominant. And you know, just like I was talking about before with the pooling of resources, that group really stayed to itself. There wasn't a lot of venturing out to the Toronto tournaments, um, but when they did go out, they would win. And I think it was frustrating for the more casual players. I think it caused some of those players to stop going to tournaments because, frankly, there was no point in going when you knew you couldn't win. Eventually, the game passed those guys by. You know, it certainly passed me by. Uh, it, I watched Eric Tam, who was a very smart guy and an excellent player for his time, but I watched the game advance while he stuck to the things that made him good in the first place, and suddenly those things were obsolete. You know, same thing, you know, Paul McCabe, uh, he got bored. You know, Paul... You know, went to college, started, you know, living life a little bit and realized that, you know, he just stopped putting the time into Magic that he had put in previously. You know, Vino's still around. I, I would guess that Gary Krakauer still plays once in a while. But, again, they're not putting the kind of time uh, that that made them good in the first place. And in the meantime, they drove away a lot of the talent that was coming up when when they reigned supreme. So, you know, uh, you know, it is what it is. I know, like, Elijah Pollock... Uh, has stayed in mathematically inclined work. You know, he's actually working for Pinnacle now, along with a lot of the old Pro Tour regulars, you know, Dirk Rebrowski, Richard Hohen, um, you know, like a lot of those guys. So, you know, Marco Bloom's down there. So, you know, the Magic guys, you know, the, the top top minds always stuck together, and, they, you know, they've done that even after the Magic days. So did, did you work more with the these this Toronto team, or... You just work with everybody, the, the the strongest, like Kai and everyone. I worked with the Toronto team to qualify, but the thing is, those guys were at their they were at their their strongest uh, when I was still on my way up. You know, they were at their strongest in seasons one and two of the Pro Tour. Okay. My first Pro Tour was Pro Tour Dallas, which was the first Pro Tour of season two. Um, I did not cash there. I then went to Pro Tour LA. I and I didn't make day two there, and then I failed to qualify for Paris. So, you know, it took me a few pro tours to actually get myself on the, you know, you know uh, to the point where I was winning. And by that time, the rest of the Toronto guys, you know, at least most of them were starting to go by the wayside. Gabe Sang was coming into his own. You know, Gabe was still a very strong player. You know, really, there wasn't a full-on team in Toronto. And so once I started becoming a regular on the pro tour, meeting some of these other people and getting to know them better, uh, it made sense for me to start pulling my resources with them because they were as dedicated as I was to making something of it. Well, excellent. It actually gives me a lot of faith in trying to set up uh, my team here in Montreal, uh, getting local guys together. I've, I've been told that... Well, you don't, know, keep it lo- don't just keep it local. Go online. Practice online. Seriously. like we. Okay, you want to know what my secret was to doing well at the Pro Tour, especially in Limited, where, which was where I had all my strong finishes? I would go on NetDraft, which was a program, a very crude program that was available through IRC, and I would net draft all day, every day. And I would just do 
five times as many drafts as anybody else. And it got to the point where when I would open up my packs, I already knew exactly what the right pick was. And I knew which cards were likely to come back, which cards weren't. And, you know, I just, you know, like I said before, the guy who works the hardest wins. You can use those those kinds of programs even to this day if you have a group of guys that you can test with. The key is to network because if you, if you only work with those Montreal guys, the problem that you're going to encounter is you're all of the same mindset, you're all working with the same metagame, and you're all going to basically come out with the same ideas. What you want to do is network with people outside your area so you can get a feel for the way other people are thinking because that gives you a broader range of experience and therefore a broader range of, of knowledge to draw upon. And that's going to make you a more complete player. I think that's really true for any game, you know, Magic or otherwise. Wow. Thanks for the advice, Jerry. Um, one question I have is, uh, while watching, once again, the John Becker interview, you mentioned that he asked you if you would ever show up to an event once in a while because you have free entry to your Hall of Fame. But I, I'm sure you've been very busy with your poker endeavor, right? You know, you know it's not just about the poker endeavors. I think... I think Magic is a game where if you are not dedicated, you are not going to win. And I am certainly not dedicated. I play about twice a year now. And I'm certainly not dedicated enough that I could do the playtesting for a few months that I would need to to be competitive for a pro tour. You know, I just got married. I'm buying a house. <laughs> when, when, when real life takes over, you know, Magic gets deprioritized. And you just it's hard to keep up with 20 or 22-year-olds who can play Magic all day every day. You know, that, with that in mind... You know, when they originally put me in the Hall of Fame and they said, you know, go to every tournament, it's for $500. And $500 would have been enough to pay for those tournaments, which would in turn have, you know, allowed me to treat those tournaments as vacations. Uh, soon after I got in, they reduced it to $250. And when you're talking about trips where you're paying for hotels for four nights and you're paying for airfare, $250 really doesn't go a long way. And I'm just not, you know, I'm not well set up financially enough that. Um, I can just throw around an extra eight hundred bucks, you know, on a on a tournament that I know I'm not going to cash in. So there's very little incentive for me to go. If there's a pro tour in Toronto, sure, I would, you know, I'd, I'd probably show up, play one round, and go home and collect my two hundred fifty bucks. Um, but other than that, I just don't. I, I doubt that I'll be at any pro tours in the near future, unless uh, you know, unless they ask me to gunsling or or they change the Hall of Fame rules. <laughs> Damn. Well, we got to see guys like uh, Dave Williams and Eric Frolic that that obviously are are big known poker stars. That that I actually saw them last weekend at the GP. So it's always interesting to see uh, these old known names come back to the game and, and play. Um, well, you'll, no- you'll notice you didn't see me at the GP, and it was in my own hometown. Like that's <laughs> that's that's how little I'm involved these days. I guess. <laughs> Well, at least you're doing a podcast with me, so I guess you're somewhat involved. Well, you know, I, 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 I you know, I, I agreed to do the podcast because I know what it's like to be on the other side and asking for asking for the help. You know, uh, I make my living by doing that. You know, these days, I, you know, I, I obviously I know I know all the big names in, in the poker world, but their time is still very valuable, and I go to them and I ask for their help, and they're they're you know they're happy to give it. So you know, I call it call it paying it forward. I guess. Uh, yeah, hey, and you know, maybe if, if I catch if if I'm able to promote the stuff that I'm doing, and I can get a few more readers or a few more viewers. Think great, you know that's that's part of my job too. So, uh, you know, there are benefits for me also. <laughs> All right, I think we're gonna wrap this up. So, uh, Pip, anything you want? <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah. See, this is why when I when I'm in your seat, I call this the softball. You know, this is where you 
You toss a very soft pitch, and you let the other guy just hit it out of the park. Well, folks, if, if you are interested in, in following the stuff that I'm doing, uh, I'm on Twitter at GaryWise1. Uh, you can follow me there. Uh, I might actually tweet, you know, one of these days. Uh, I do regular column work on ESPN.com uh, in their poker section. That's ESPN.com slash poker. And my other big thing right now is I've started doing a webcast on PokerStatic.com. It's called Gary Wise versus the World. We get a bunch of poker players sitting down, talking a little bit about, about the stuff that's going on in the poker world that week, talking a little smack about one another. It's fun. So, uh, you know, I hope people will uh, check it out and enjoy it. Any advice that you would give to anybody that's actually writing or wants to get their name out there? Should they just, like, start a blog, just start going at it and get noticed somehow? Or You know, blogging's fine. I don't think blogging is the end-all, be-all. Uh, I, I don't – I think there are ultimately so many blogs out there today that it's hard for you to get noticed by doing that. What you want to do is you want to contact the people you want to write for and offer to write for them for free. It is a fabulous way to get your foot in the door and a fabulous way to get your resume bolstered. Uh, it's the way I started. When I when I started in poker, I started a company called Wise Hand Poker that's no longer around. I wrote for about five months. And at that point, my business partner contacted Bluff Magazine. He said, we will write for you for free if you let us put our URL at the bottom of the article. They said, absolutely. Uh, six months after that, I was getting paid very well for my articles for Bluff. And from there, I got noticed by ESPN. Really, you know, it's writing just like magic is something you don't do if you're doing it for the money. Do it for the love and try to make money while you're doing it. You know me. I, li- I like to. I like to tell stories. So writing was a perfect way for me to go. Um, but yeah, if if you want, if you you know, here's the thing. If you are writing, you are writing because you want people to care what you have to say. The more people who have to care you, you, what, what you have to say, the happier you're going to be. So what you want to do is volunteer yourself to those places that can get your voice to a lot of people, and eventually, all those people will notice what you're doing, and you might get paid for it. Well, thank you so much for your advice, Gary. I think I think we'll wrap it up here. Uh, thank you for your time. One other piece of advice, by the way, read Stephen King's On Writing. It is a fabulous book, and it will really put into perspective a lot of stuff that you can that you should be doing, or the reasons you should be doing it. It's 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 the best book for writers on the market. It's it's unbelievable. I will definitely check it out. There you go. <laughs> Okay, thanks, Gary, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening. And this is KYT for Man of the Prime.com with Gary Wise. Take care.